This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Monica Bell. Monica is an Associate Professor in Sociology and Law at Yale University. Monica joined me to talk about police violence, the murder of George Floyd and the trial of Derek Chauvin, as well as the pursuit of police reform and racial justice in the United States. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM in Melbourne. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the wonderful Associate Professor Monica Bell. Now, you should know that she covers a range of areas in academia and knowledge, including being an Associate Professor in Sociology, as well as an Associate Professor in Law at Yale University. And she does some really wonderful research and thinking and commentary around policing, around racial justice, around racial segregation. There's so many elements to Monica's expertise. So I'm really, really pleased to be speaking with Monica in particular today about some really, really vital issues that no doubt you would have seen in the headlines over a number of months, of course, because uh, we do know here in Australia, as it did make news around the world, the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020, where we saw Derek Chauvin, one of the four police officers from Minneapolis Police Department, who were involved in the arrest of George Floyd on that day. They arrested him because they suspected he may, it was alleged, be using a counterfeit bill at Cup Foods, which is a a kind of corner store that has never been shown to be the case. Then we saw the video that was taken by bystanders. George Floyd was initially approached by police. He had a gun pointed at him through his car window. He was startled and frightened by that situation. He was taken out of his car. They were seeking to make this arrest to place him in a police car. He had claustrophobia, said he was anxious, was verbalising these concerns with them. He was ending up, we saw later in the video, being forced onto the ground in the prone position with his hands behind his back, having Derek Chauvin's knee placed at the back of his neck and then proceeding to do that for such a long time. And then he eventually, after protesting, telling them he couldn't breathe so many times, that he was happy to comply with police, he still was being held unnecessarily with all this force and pressure on his back, as we saw during the trial that has just been playing out. And then we saw that he did lose consciousness, that a police officer noticed he didn't have a pulse, and that CPR wasn't started at any point until the ambulance arrived, in which case they had to basically very commandingly force Derek Chauvin to actually remove his knee and to start um, the chest compressions themselves. So this was a very shocking and extreme and public and violent act that the whole world saw. So I just wanted to give that uh, backdrop if people hadn't seen that video or um, hadn't seen it since last May. We're going to talk about the murder of George 
Floyd, deaths by police in America against black and brown people and uh, unnecessary police violence and police force and the issues of racial justice in America. And so this is where I welcome Monica to the program to talk about all of these issues with her fantastic insights. Hi there, Monica, and thank you so much for joining us from Connecticut, USA. Hi, Amy. It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's my real pleasure. And I've got to say, I really appreciated all of your thoughts and insights around the murder of George Floyd. But as we know, and as you have pointed out among so many others, this isn't an isolated incident. It is an extreme form of violence, but there is, I guess, a spectrum of violence that police enact against black and brown Americans on a daily basis. And certainly some of these incidents do make global news. And of course, then we are aware of that here in Australia. And Australians have their own issues in terms of Australia's First Nations people and deaths in police custody here. So I wanted to get a sense from you, first of all, you're living in America, you're across all of the contemporary discussions around police brutality and police violence and using George Floyd's murder as an example and as a prism for that. What have been some of the conversations in America at the moment that you think have been new or maybe not new, but have been a step forward in some sense on these issues? Yeah, so so thank you so much for that question. And, you know, I think there are at least three big changes um, that have happened in the American conversation about policing since the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd in May 2020. So the first of those big changes is that because of the protests, I mean, and I understand that you also had um, lots of protests in Australia, um, because of the protests in uh, the U.S., there was um, more questioning of the role of police in society than I've ever had before. This is to say, usually when an issue with policing comes up, the baseline assumption is that, well, police, we need police because they make us safe. And so the question is how to reform our current system. And so one of the big changes, the first, is that people have now been questioning and not just, you know, black people and brown people who live in marginalized communities, but even white people in America have started to question whether police actually make communities more safe. People are drawing a distinction now between more policing and more safety. So that's a been a big change in just the national conversation. Um, the other big change is the big call from movements uh, for the past year has been to defund the police. So to cut local police budgets, to have less policing and to invest that money in other sorts of resources. So to invest that money in the social welfare system, or in uh, community groups that are doing work that make communities safer without having guns, which our police carry, or the, the prison system. And that conversation is new. That's a really a brand new national conversation. And then the third is, is related to that, which is, you know, people have been talking about the abolition 
of police and prisons for decades in America, but only a small number of people inspired by the work of, of scholars like Angela Davis. And of course, long before that, W.E.B. Du Bois writing about an abolition democracy. So a place like a, a democratic organization that is about abolishing the institutions that produce racial injustice in society. And so more recently, there has been a national understanding of ideas of prison and police abolition that are held in large public conversations. Like I just spent six hours earlier today in a public conversation with a bunch of white people and police leaders and prison leaders where we had, we talked all day about abolition. And wow. that is a radical change from uh, police reform conversations before the death of George Floyd. That's amazing. I'm just wondering, what are some of the responses of people to those discussions? Because, I mean, you mentioned they're defunding the police and, of course, there's either defunding them completely or partially and then redirecting funds to elsewhere, as you say, to other more complementary and far more positive modes of community welfare and well-being and then there's also of course yeah, abolishing the police i wonder what are some of the responses to those types of proposals because they seem like not everyone may agree i guess on what <laughs> might be the way forward right yeah so so not everyone agrees with uh defunding or abolition for sure uh so really um when i talked about the conversation changing mm. that's really what i meant um the movements have changed the conversation but that doesn't mean that policies have done exactly what the the implications of of the movement actions have been but but movements have changed the politics so let me be a little bit more specific about what i mean there so after defund the police became the slogan of black lives matter in uh the summer of 2020 after that happened um a bunch of localities kind of took an approach where they weren't going to actually cut police funding um or, or maybe they would cut police funding slightly. But instead of doing that part of the call, they did start investing in other resources beyond the police. So for example, in San Francisco and in New York City uh, and in Denver, Colorado, the uh, city has created alternative response units. So for people who are in some kind of mental health crisis, or some other sort of crisis that doesn't really require a police response. And the city has invested money and instead of sending police to those calls, um, they would send mental health workers, social workers, people who aren't the police for emergency response. Now, activists have been trying to get that for years. Only after the call, the, the, the demand became even more radical than that, that cities start actually taking up the project of investing in alternatives to traditional policing. So similarly, uh, we see that with respect to investments in social welfare, investments in community organizations, um, where cities aren't doing defunding and they're not doing abolition, um, but they are making more radical investments than they were willing to do before. So what used mm -hmm. to be the far left has now become the center. And that change has been really important. But but you actually asked about how these are re received, these calls are received, and I want to say a little bit more about that. So the value of the slogan, defund the police, 
or in the value of calling for a police abolition does not seem to be to appeal to the, the masses, right? So, you know, the polling on defund the police is, is quite bad, even among Black people, by the way. Most Black Americans don't want the police to end, um, you know, even if that's kind of the you know, even if I'll, you know, just to be transparent, that's the political view I take. It's not a majoritarian sort of view. And in fact, uh, after the 2020 election, uh, some uh, kind of liberal Democrats in the U.S. Uh, claimed that some uh, U.S. House of Representatives seats, which those, you know, they serve for two years in the Congress, um, uh, two-year terms, and uh, there were some claims that many Democrats lost their elections in places that are kind of mixed in, in, in the sense of, you know, either a Republican or a Democrat might win. Uh, there's a claim that they lost those seats because of defund the police, because um, Republicans were able to paint Democrats as being police abolitionists. And that was really scary to people. Um, you know, and I'm not sure if the data totally align with that view of what happened in the election, but it is fair to say that this is not a majoritarian view. The real political value of it is that in policy rooms, it entirely changes what's possible. And it also motivates people who have been left out of politics um, to, to get more involved. It makes a lot of sense to me in the sense that having worked in areas like gender equality and you see changes are so incremental a lot of the time that these shifts in conversation do eventually shift policy in a gradual sense. And as you were saying there about at least redirecting funds or even increasing funds and placing them into other programs that are better in the sense of having better outcomes for black and brown Americans. I mean, that is progress. And I wonder whether you think that that is a signal that there is more room to keep pushing the conversation along, given that what was deemed, as you say, far left or quite radical an idea like defunding the police, whether that now means that there's more scope to continue pushing out the boundaries. So yes, I absolutely do think, you know, like it's still true that defund and abolition, but but I'm focusing on defund really as a as a piece of a larger abolition puzzle. But there's so much more work that terminology can do. And so we've actually started to see cities in the United States, some of them wanted to cut police funding. So I'm thinking here, uh, Seattle, Washington um, is, an, is a good example of this. The um, city voted to cut police funding quite drastically and the police, and, first, and so they have a, a, a charter commission that, that pushed that back. And also what I really wanted to elevate is that the police union, so they're, you know, unions of police officers, public sector unions across the nation, they vary a bit state by state with state rules. But um, the, the key thing is that there are powerful police unions that are fighting even minimal cuts to police funding. And there has been a, a deep conversation actually about whether police unions should count, like whether um, national union organizations should include police unions in their group because police unions are fundamentally different from other sorts of labor unions. And, you know, I elevate this to raise, there's a lot of room now even being had about 
the, the entire landscape of political actors because of the call to defund is so powerful. And the other thing I'll mention too, is that, so in the United States, um, recently the United States House of Representatives passed out of committee um, for the first time, this bill called HR 40, which is a bill that commits to study reparations for the enslavement of Black Americans historically. Now, this bill um, has been introduced in every session of Congress for, I think, the past nearly 40 years. I could have the the precise numbers wrong, but between 30 and 40 years, um, this piece of legislation was, uh, uh, was brought to the fore, was introduced, but it's, it's never gotten out of committee until this year. And, you know, it's, it's not going to pass, right? It's not going to mm-hmm. pass this year. But the point is that the, the conversation about defund has meant that we are now having uh, debates about, like more generally about funding and racial justice in America, like linking funding and racial justice. And the defund and reparations conversations fit together quite well and feed off of each other. And so that whole politics, that whole like radical politics of racial justice is space that has been opened up by defund. And that's where I think that's part of where this whole conversation is going. Wow, that sounds amazing in the sense that it has those broader implications for racial justice and the historical implications that you just mentioned there and the history of the United States and black slavery in the United States and that legacy that's ongoing in terms of the racial inequality and also ongoing racism and segregation in society. It seems like all of those issues are a continual thing that people are confronted by on a daily basis and in one of those senses it's expressed in policing but also of course it's expressed in other fora and I was reminded of your thoughts I think it was you were talking about this concept of uh, racism that you have in in sociology and how it's really something that you say racism is a collective cultural phenomenon ground into our structures and institutions but also our ideas the tests of racism are often psychological but actually racism's daily occurrences are sociological not just psychological and you go on to talk about what that really means and how basically it's not just about an individual person being racist but drawing on a whole set of scripts and tools around racism that's uh, been ingrained into the culture i wondered if you might be able to share more of your perspective around that with us for those of us who um, perhaps aren't familiar with that way of conceiving of racism and, and it's all-encompassing um, way that it operates throughout society yeah, yeah, I'm uh, sure. I'm, I'm totally happy to talk about that. So I think, you know, and just to, to bring this down to a granular level, mm. because I work so much on policing, you know, so uh, one of the things that comes up all the time in conversations with, uh, like about policing and about abolition, and all these things as well, you know, but you some officers are good people, right? You know, <laughs> this is not about... It's just like, yes, I mean, I know police officers who are fine people and who are not individually racist, but that doesn't mean that ideas about suspicious behavior 
that like that that officer might access in a particular time, that those wouldn't sort of sound in racism. And so let me be, um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So uh, just a few minutes, uh, just shortly before the verdict in the Derek Chauvin t- case was announced, police in Columbus, Ohio, shot and killed 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. And uh, Micaiah Bryant had a young Black woman, uh, Mm. I should mention. Uh, She called the police herself because she felt in danger where she was. Um, She was involved in some fight, like a fight with two other girls. Um, She called the police, the police show up and Micaiah Bryant had uh, a knife. And she was kind of like, if you watch the video, it's like they were Mm. fighting. She had a knife, but you know, it was just girls fighting. And the police officer, and when she looked like she was about to cut um, one of the other girls she was fighting with, the police officer shot her. And that's how she died. She was shot to death in the street. And, and you know, basically the legal conversation, like there's no conversation, it's, it's like the officer shot her because she was uh, endangering someone else. And that follows law, that follows procedure. It's legal, it's perfectly legal. However, after she was shot, the screaming, the wailing of everyone around, even the girls who she was attacking, a, a man off the side was yelling, she's a kid, she's a kid. Are you stupid to the mm-hmm. officer? You know, the pain that was elicited through that but, but the, the officer's decision to shoot this young girl, I would argue, comes from the perception of the disposability of Black Americans, Black young girls like that. There yeah. was no need to kill her because she had a knife, actually. And everyone around her knew that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that's a concrete example of how an act that is perfectly legal, I don't, like, I, I don't have any reason to believe that that particular officer is racist, but ideas live out there and they, they become frameworks and we act upon them, even if we're not usually those types of people. And we've, of course, seen that a ton with respect to, um, to white people um, in the U.S. calling the police on Black people for a regular routine. So, like, um, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the reason I came up with this idea, like, that, that kind of description of what racism looks like is because of an incident here at Yale University where a white student called um, the police on a Black graduate student um, in a dorm in 2018. It became a big story. But interestingly, a, a big part of that story that was left out is that the white Um, student who called the police on this Black student unjustly is someone who was involved with police reform herself, was someone who considers herself to be anti-racist. And so her whole thing is like, well, you people all know I'm not racist. I work on racial justice. And, And so my response to that is it doesn't matter whether you're racist. In that moment, you saw a Black person um, and the frame that was available to you was one of danger. It doesn't, it's not about everything else you do because even people who work toward racial justice are subject to the same sorts of frames. So yeah, I'll stop there, but I hope that makes sense. 
Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Yeah, thank you for those examples. Looking at it more broadly and even looking at the George Floyd murder and situation that led to that murder, there have been so many conversations about the fact that there seems to be examples where there's a jump to conclusions because of this frame that you're talking about here that everyone's operating under that means that black and brown people are treated with more suspicion, that means that they are expected to respond in a violent way when, for example, George Floyd was not responding in a violent way and, in fact, was very polite and complying and very deferential, really, for the most part in terms of how he was interacting with police. That example certainly shocks a lot of people. But this is something which I wanted to understand from your perspective, given your focus on policing and this background kind of frame and cultural environment that we're all operating in. But in terms of these ideas about de-escalating, not jumping straight away to a lethal use of force, um, these kind of situations where we do see, and I just wanted to remind those listening, that black and brown people are more likely to be killed by police in their interactions with police than a white person. So I guess I just wanted to get your sense of what police responses are in terms of realising that there might be other ways of approaching someone if they're anxious, like George Floyd was, if it was only about a really minor potential crime, but you know that's not even proven. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around those issues that people have raised, that it seems to be that we're over-criminalising um, situations. And I, I, yeah, I just wanted to get your sense of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, are we over-criminalising situations? Absolutely. Um, there should not have been a police response at all, in my opinion, to an alleged counterfeit $20 bill. Um, there was no harm that was going to be... Um, addressed by having police respond and then also multiple police respond, mm. uh, you know, and um, what's critical here is like, sure, it may be fair for um, counterfeit money to be a crime, to be part of uh, the American criminal law, but not every crime actually receives a police response. We have a huge criminal code um, throughout our states, and we also have a growing federal criminal code, actually, even though most uh, in the United States, most criminal law is state law. So that's one problem that is, is deeply structural. Um, this came up, actually, was a big part of the conversation in, uh, 2014, in 2015 uh, when Eric Garner was killed um, in New York City. The whole idea that he was killed um, for selling loose cigarettes, which is true. Um, that is mm. a, a crime in New York. Uh, and that was the reason the officer engaged with him because he was selling Lucy's, um, loose cigarettes, and um, then he died. And, and so we still have to do a lot more work, I think, um, to, to deal with the broad scope of our criminal law. But there have been movements to, uh, uh, not just movements, but policy change around what police will respond to or what what actually uh, gets police response. So, so, so that's one sort of piece of that conversation. Um, the broader piece of your of your question about how police are responding to movements to de-escalate or arguments for de-escalation training and whatnot, there has been good response 
throughout localities and police departments to say, okay, well, maybe we should have de-escalation training. Um, many police departments already had de-escalation training, but the, the issue is that these racist frames of dangerousness interfere with officers' judgments about when it is appropriate to focus on de-escalation. So, um, so Michael Sierra Aravello, who's a, who's a sociologist at the University of Texas, Austin, has some really fascinating work about police and their sense of dangerousness. Basically, one of the reasons de-escalation training will never work in terms of ending uh, unjust killings of black and brown people in America is because police think they are in danger all the time. Even, you know, and, and this is there's this whole idea like, well, policing is risky work. And so they have to make sure they come home at the end of the day. You know, most of policing is not that dangerous actually, um, which is a, is, is a somewhat controversial, but, but well-supported thing to say. Like most of what police do every day is not that risky. However, because there's such a, frame or an idea or a norm in policing that they're constantly in danger when they encounter someone who is black or brown in certain communities who also you know let's be intersectional let's think about you know who is a like George Floyd perceived to be a large man who is on something as Derek Chauvin said it's like you don't have a chance to like there's no mm -hmm. chance to de-escalate because the assumption is that person's dangerous and so I think police are responding as well as a policy matter but as a matter of actual change in the day-to-day -day and on the street I'm not so sure yeah that's an excellent point because it reminds me during the trial watching it online they were going through you know the training that each officer goes through including Derek Chauvin and the other police officers who also would have had similar training and of course there is plenty of yearly training and retraining and reminding of all of the policies and um, the ways that you need to interact with people, what is um, an appropriate use of force, what is not, how to restrain someone in a way that's safe uh, so that they can then train other police officers to make sure that they're doing it appropriately. So even watching that through um, and the prosecution obviously making the point that you can have all of this training, but then in the moment, to not use it or to ignore it and to ignore bystanders as well, of course, calling out and saying things and ignore off-duty firefighters who offer to provide assistance and want to provide assistance. I wanted to pick up on some of the things you were just saying and bringing it back to some of the original thoughts you had because the trial brought it up. In the closing statements around uh, George Floyd from the prosecution, they were saying, this isn't policing. We're not anti-police in a sense. Mm -hmm. we, want, we want people to follow their training. You know, the police are meant to be there to do the right thing, to make us feel safe. And so this whole case is not about being anti-police. It's about being pro-police doing the right thing and making the society safe. So I guess the legal system itself is reinforcing this assumption still. Well, yeah. I mean, so the American legal system defers to police arguments about what needs to happen to be to, to, to create safety. So our Supreme Court doctrine is really built um, on the idea that uh, police have a lot of power to 
to engage in a lot of behavior that that turns out to be racist. So there's this case um, that's really the the, the basic um, case around kind of allowing police to to stop people essentially for no reason, um, Terry versus Ohio, um, which uh, was decided in 1968. Uh, And that case, uh, along with so many others, really reinforces the idea that the police officer has a, has a special sort of mind. They can figure out when a, when a situation is dangerous, when someone looks funny, and that can really not totally on its own, but essentially on its own, be a reason to stop and search someone. Um, and there, there, there are just few, few boundaries on, on that. Beyond that, the case itself, so the, one of the things I've been somewhat concerned about is a lot of the media commentary after the Derek Chauvin verdict was saying, this is the first step in, you know, totally reimagining police and, you know, the movement is going to win. This case, as you were, as you were just mentioning, is not about the police, really. This case is about one of the most extreme and most public caught on video acts of brutality that we have seen in American history, right? So this is um, really a unique moment, is is very rare, and it will continue to be rare to get a criminal conviction for murder um, for a police officer. And one of the reasons uh, for that is um, that our legal system is set up. So, you know, you don't want, like, as a theoretical matter, like, if you're concerned with having police uh, behave, you know, you want police to act, you want police to get involved in situations in order to keep people safe. You don't want them to be subject to criminal conviction or to to civil liability. So having to pay damages for getting involved in cases. And so we have a doctrine that's created by courts qualified immunity um, that, that keeps officers from being held liable in civil cases, but also we have presumptions in the criminal law that that, that keep police officers from being held criminally liable. So what is all this to say? Um, the nine minutes and 29 seconds that Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck is the only thing the case was about. It wasn't about many of the things we talked about before. It wasn't about overcriminalization. It wasn't about how many officers responded. It wasn't about the fact that a gun was pulled on George Floyd for absolutely no reason um, when he was pulled over. It, it wasn't about anything other than those nine minutes and 29 seconds. And so one of the things I think is really just important to keep in mind is that the, the work, the movement, everything that needs to go forward, the the deep policy change and the political change has to be reducing the role of that sort of aggressive policing in our society altogether. Um, And that can happen in a lot of ways, right? So I'm actually an advocate of disarming the police. It's like, you know, there are places in the world where police officers are not armed all the time, um, uh, and or they have might have a combination of armed police officers and, and not armed police officers, for example. That would save a lot of lives. You know, I'm an advocate for reducing the size of our police forces in, in certain cities where they are overgrown, at, at the very least, um, and really just pushing toward a world 
where we don't need police in prisons. And what does that mean? Does that mean like all the prisons and all the police are gonna go away tomorrow or should go away tomorrow? Absolutely not. But building toward that world, meaning investing in, as we, were, as we started the conversation, investing in interventions that make communities more safe. We know from buckets of, of sociological research um, and criminological research that people commit acts of violence and other crimes often out of necessity or perceived necessity out of environments that have been disinvested. So like where people don't have work, don't have access to education, don't have all the resources that build safe communities. And we can reorient that, you know? So, so anyway, these are some of the um, uh, proposals and ideas that come out of a commitment to public safety as opposed to just policing on its own. Mm. It makes me think that one of the other things to come out of this trial, at least something that I noticed, um, and I obviously haven't watched every kind of trial, um, so I couldn't make those comparisons. Maybe you could share with us your thoughts. But um, with George Floyd, and given that he has become um, visibly recognisable, um, and you know, murals have been painted of his face, and you know, he has a presence, I guess, in many places and in people's minds. And we've seen from this case a humanisation of. George Floyd. He was an individual human, um, a black American. He was a, a leader in his community, as his brother said, his younger brother said in his testimony. He was someone who people looked up to and went to church because he went to church. He looked out for his, you know, his friends and siblings when they were young, uh, cooking for them or making them lunch when they went to school, making sure they had their school clothes. The, the way that people spoke of him and who he was as a person, making it absolutely abundantly clear that his life mattered, like we all know. It just seemed like something, I don't think it's something that was new, but it really was very overt watching and hearing about who George Floyd was. This is not just his story, but of course there's Breonna Taylor, there's Micaiah Bryant that you were talking about. There's also Dante Wright, who recently was also shot. So I just wanted to get a sense from you as well in terms of the role that media or public discourse might have to play about the way that we talk about black lives and black people and black and brown people in America. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a really great question. And it's something, you know, I've been reflecting on a lot also as a scholar who writes about black people. Um, you know, it's different from the media, but I think there is there are some uh, interesting similarities. So, you know, I think the humanization, uh, for lack of a better word, story um, for George Floyd throughout the trial was, was critical and valuable. And, and, and I think, like, I, I remember seeing shortly after George Floyd died when the video um, was circulating, uh, an old friend of mine was just commenting, oh, you know, he was calling out for his mother. And when he called out for his mother, it wasn't any of these facts about his life that you were talking about that came up mm. in the trial, but even just the humanization, it's like, oh, remembering that this is someone who had a mother, that, that, that the deep dehumanization of Black people uh, globally, um, actually, 
uh, especially, but also, so also including in America, that dehumanization is so deep that simply remembering that a black person has a mother matters a lot to people. So I think media can have a really important role to play in telling stories about black people, including black people who are suspects or who are criminal defendants or, or, or like telling more about their humanity, not just saying a black man or whatever, um, and not just focusing on what's, what's troubling about them. I will say one thing that I really appreciated in the kind of humanization story of George Floyd is that, you know, and this is of course by legal necessity, they didn't shy away from the fact that he is someone who um, had a drug addiction and who, who struggled with using drugs, but that was contextualized. You know, his, his former girlfriend uh, testified in the trial and, and told stories about him that really even humanized a addiction, which has been hard historically, um, especially for Black people in the U.S., uh, given the crack epidemic, so to speak, in the 1980s and 1990s. No one was telling humanizing stories about people who use drugs. And I think the opioid crisis um, in the U.S., which um, has, has taken in more white people and is a much more recent episode of of widespread uh, drug use and drug addiction has ch even changed those sorts of politics. So and I, I guess the concern I do have about the role of media and these and humanizing black stories is that, you know, as you were alluding to earlier, George Floyd didn't do anything wrong in his interactions with police. To the extent he was doing anything that appeared to be resisting, it was out of deep anxiety and terror. He didn't resist at all. Now, but but just because someone resists being arrested for no reason, they shouldn't die, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, I guess, you know, I think about Michael Brown, uh, you know, Ferguson in 2014, and how the New York Times ran a story which, with the headline, he was no angel, and proceeded to to talk about how Michael Brown struggled to graduate from high school, but he did. And there's like very, I don't know, things that they viewed as not being angelic. And it's like, it, that's not important. <laughs> you know, yeah. like is, you shouldn't have to be a perfect black person in order to not be killed by the police. And one thing I guess I worry about black people's trauma and Black people's um, experiences shouldn't have to be fodder in order for white people to see them as human. Mm -hmm. And I suppose, like, maybe this is a necessary, um, it was, maybe it's necessary right now, given the depth of Black dehumanization. But um, that's not the promised land. Like, the promised land is we are not uh, subject to to this sort of violence, regardless of whether we have behaved perfectly. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Looking back even in history with, you know, the Holocaust, for example, having to humanize Jewish people when they were dehumanized by the state in Nazi Germany as an example, mm -hmm. um, different but still very much on the same lines of people who have been dehumanized because of their racial status over centuries, we end up at this point now where we're almost um, grateful that they seem human, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
just, I guess, gobsmacking. Yeah, so you really just pointed it out so well. Um, it is really dire, and I guess that you say that's not the promised land. Well, maybe I should ask you, what is the promised land in your mind, given that you've said mm. what you've been advocating for? What are some of the things that you think we need to focus on as being the ultimate goal here? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. And I want to I wanna be clear. So I'm going to tell you what my big goal is understanding that my my goal is never going to happen right so like, like yeah. but i think it's really important for us to um as people who want to see change to know what we're working towards i mean you know like mm. i think that i think about this actually sometimes in religious terms like so there's this like you know i mentioned the term the promised land it's like well the promised land is a conception from the bible um and it's about you know arriving at a place ultimately, but not everyone can get there and you don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but you still have to build toward it, have to work toward it. And so my sort of big goal, like the thing I have out in front of me is a world where there is true racial justice and liberation for black and brown people. There is, and so, and so people can choose whatever type of life they want to live. People can pursue joy in any way. And the state doesn't stand in the way of that. We don't have a, a carceral system. We don't have a penal system where we just throw people away forever. That doesn't exist. And we don't need it because we don't have systems of inequality and, uh, and oppression that create violent people. Right. So like, yeah. um, so, so like, that's the big goal, a, a, a harmonious world where people have maximal freedom and maximal community. Um, so that world is, um, <laughs> is, is, is utopian. So, so what are the steps? Um, so for me, massive investment in um, the ways people relate to each other. So, so for me, that actually means community groups and especially community groups that are led by black and brown people that are interested in improving their communities, giving funding to those groups, helping them do research so they can track their progress. And, you know, we're talking about policing and you're probably like, what does that have to do with policing? <laughs> the, the goal is that those sorts of groups um, ultimately help take over the work that police think they're supposed to be doing. Because right now in the U.S. especially, but I, I don't think this is uh, unique to the U.S., but in the U.S., so our police departments, our policies put more police in Black and brown communities, especially in cities and urban areas, in order to you know, watch over the community. Uh, you have police officers. I actually um, was talking to someone the other day who was like, oh, I'm trying to run a program where we give police officers money and they can give it to, they can like buy someone a coffee or like, you know, help, help, um, uh, help someone get into a homeless shelter. And it's like, well, why is it the police role to do yeah. that? We should have alternative systems for that. Like, you know, we should have enough shelter workers and social workers that we don't rely on police for that. So this idea, this proposal is to actually invest in resources, people out on the street and community groups. So we just don't expect police to do things that, that even they say they're not well equipped to do. So police don't want to be social workers and we should stop asking them to be. Um, so, so 
So that's part of the vision. I think also there is a, um, a federal government vision here that's really important. So um, I think uh, our uh, national government, and so, and so I guess just also, maybe this is helpful for context. United States has 18,000 plus police departments and they're mostly locally run. So that means cities, counties, universities. My university has um, a police department that students are advocating to, to abolish. All these are run locally. So the federal government has a quite minimal role in the actual policies of police departments. That can and should change. So police departments can have national standards. Uh, there can be, uh, I mean, there Congress is considering laws right now to have national standards around um, de-escalation training, around um, body cameras. And these are solutions that I am not uh, ex- as excited about in the sense that like, I think they just kind of like maintain the status quo. However, while we have police, we should have better standards for them. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, these are, you know, um, that's just a few things, but there are many um and like, I hope you get a sense of my like general orientation around what the solutions look like. Yeah, absolutely. I really am so grateful, Monica, for what you've been sharing with us today and your really fascinating insights and all the great work that you're doing in this area, not just academically, of course, but as you have mentioned in this conversation, working with community groups directly in this whole area of police reform, questions of criminality even, and also racial justice and political police violence. So um, I know I could ask you a lot of other questions, but um, we'll leave it there for now. And um, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a fun conversation. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.